Hi everybody, welcome to season two of Wrong Term Memory, where we speak about serial killers. As always, my name is Jack. And uh, my name's Colin. Uh, they say music, Jack, that the, the second album is always the difficult one. Hopefully we don't run into that similar sort of issue with this, but I, somehow I don't think we will, because it's a bit of a specialist subject of ours, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know if it's a specialist subject, but I understand where you're coming from. I kind of enjoy reading about it. I used to read about it quite a lot as a youngster, and my favourite in inverted commas serial killer was always Jeffrey Dahmer because of how fucked up he was, basically, like a real twisted individual, and that's where we're starting today, mate, basically. Looking forward, we have discussed him before on a other network, but this is going to be slightly different, it's not going to be as in-depth, it's going to be more just an overview of a guy who loved a chug in public, basically. Yeah, a guy who was just a disturbed, disgusting individual, and you could get hard whether you were warm or cold, he didn't really care. <laughs> That's it. Now, we, like I said, this is a little bit of a sideways look, a trigger warning, not for kids really, we're going to be speaking about lots of dark shit, but we're going to laugh at stuff, we're not laughing at the victims by the way, we're just laughing at the sheer madness of it at times, basically, because like we says he was... Pretty twisted. Born in 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Do you know much about Milwaukee or Wisconsin in general, Colin? Um, nah, Milwaukee's associated, for some reason, associated with baseball, but that's about it. Don't know why you know why I do that, but Milwaukee means baseball for some reason. In my head, it's Mormons or Amish. I think there's a massive proportion of people of that sect or religion that come from Wisconsin. Anyways, born to uh, Joyce and Lionel, um, who is a chemistry student at the time when he has Jeffrey, which kind of comes into it later on, if memory serves, and his mum was a tele-machine instructor, so her job would be at threat from robots, I think, nowadays, Colin, but kind of normal family, you know, like, she's a, she's got an admin job, he's a, he's working towards a better job, in inverted commas, the dad, yeah, absolutely. You wouldn't usually with these sort of guys that end up being these serial killers or have these issues. They come from either broken homes or, for of a better expression, scumbag upbringings and stuff like that. And he literally doesn't. He's got two parents with decent enough jobs, and by all accounts, he was a pretty energetic and happy child up until round about his fourth birthday, Jack, where he had a double hernia surgery, and that did sort of alter his mood somewhat, didn't it? Well, he seems to think that he'd either been castrated which I don't think is on point, basically, because if he was castrated, he wouldn't have had these uh, sexual stroke masochistic urges. But he, Jeffrey, seems to think he'd done something to his brain, which, again, I don't know as particularly true, to be honest with you. Now, he was an only child for a while, but they had another kid, six years old, Jeffrey was, so they got him a little dog, so they did. They did, and um, just like Jeffrey, it was it was frisky. Well, that was frisky by name. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an understatement. Yes. <laughs> it was frisky by name, rather, whether he was frisky by practice. Um, and hopefully Frisky didn't get involved in any of this, but he did manifest an interest in dead animals. He used to collect the large insects like dragonflies and butterflies and things like that, Jack, in jars. Eventually kind of wilded himself up to collecting animal carcasses from the roadside. Um even things as big as dogs and stuff like that, mate. And that's when he first started, I don't know if the right word is torturing, uh, because the thing's already dead, but it was when he started hammering nails and crushing skulls and stuff of dead bodies, started with these animals and dogs and things like that. Yeah, that was the thing. Like His dad was a chemistry teacher by now, and Damer starts to get this interest in what would happen if you put chicken bones in acid and shit like that. So his dad was... Pretty happy that he was interested in what he was doing, so he would show him how to safely bleach and preserve animal bones, which is going to sort of basically um, come into it pretty heavily as a as an adult, where he's fucking people up pretty badly. Gets to about 14, mate, and this is a big thing with a lot of serial killers. Starts either taking drugs or boozing. He calls it his medicine to his classmates, but he's basically getting pissed during the day in school at 14. Yeah, that's. I mean, we, we all probably start start messing with drink at the age of fourteen, don't we? But I don't think any of us were like going to school loaded at that point. Maybe once a year for social dancing or something like that, but not. Yeah, the day after social dance, I remember drinking a bottle of Bailey's before going to school once, and being 
so pissed I don't know how I never get sent up the road but <laughs> got away with it got, absolutely got away with it uh, after I bought a Bailey's at 8 in the morning but he was doing it every day yeah. it's a mad thing for a teenage boy to be doing he also reached puberty and discovered that he was gay um, he had a brief relationship with another teenage boy although they never went the full hog and had sex and probably probably for the best for that lad um, because Dalma then began fantasising about dominating and controlling a completely submissive male partner and um, these fantasies, Jack, gradually became interwined and worse and worse with dissection. Yeah, so these things get sort of rammed together in a young, supple brain and it gets to the stage where he basically can't separate it and he starts to have this fantasy about completely controlling a, an unconscious body and at 16 he decides to get the baseball bat out, hide in the bushes and basically wait for a jogger to run past and fucks him over the head with a baseball bat it was his first attempt to attack somebody, basically. He didn't murder this guy, so this guy's got away with it lightly, um, let's be honest. But at 16, hiding in the bushes, smashing people about the head with a baseball bat, signs of, wait a minute, Jeffrey needs a little bit of fucking psychological help by the sounds of it. He does, but he kind of goes against the mode a little bit as well, and at the same time, he becomes known as a little bit of the class clown, staging pranks, and even became, he was pushed. <laughs> yeah, even became a bit of a verb in terms of doing a demo. Um, things like bleating and simulating epileptic seizures or pretending he had cerebral palsy and stuff like that. The kind of extrovert behaviour like that isn't something you'd normally associate with somebody like him or somebody that acts like he does, but I suppose the drinks probably got a big impact on that as well. Yeah, his family kind of split up in 77 in September they get a divorce his, his parents they want it's quite an amical divorce as far as I know but the dad moves out and Dema Jeffrey decides to live with other relatives he's only turned 18 at this point and <clears throat> this is when his first murder happens basically I'm going to do an impression here here goes the first killing was not planned. I had had fantasies about picking up a hitchhiker and taking him back to the house and having complete control and dominance over him. There you are. That's, it never turned Indian, so that was it Jeffrey Damer. It did go a bit South Park towards the end, but I did like it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. yeah, so his first victim, mate, uh, Stevie Hicks at 18 years old. What happened with Stevie? Um, so, Stevie... Um, basically, this was in 1978, three weeks after his graduation. Um... He picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Mark Hicks, who was almost 19. He lured the guy back to his house, um, just basically, let's go drink alcohol together. Um, Hicks, who'd been hitchhiking to go to a rock concert at the time, agreed to go back. Uh, they drank together for several hours, listening to music. Um, Hicks wanted to leave, but Jeffrey didn't want him to, so he battered fuck out him with a £10 dumbbell, Jack. Well, if you don't want somebody to leave your house, that is what you do, no? Yeah, um, if somebody ever tries to leave you, hit them with a dumbbell, that is Jeffrey's advice. Then strangle um, them, basically. Yeah, yeah, he eventually strangled them to death with the bar of the dumbbell, stripped them, um, began masturbating over the, over the corpse, and then started dissecting <laughs> the body in his basement. Um, he buried the remains in a shallow grave in the backyard uh, before several weeks later, digging them up and taking the flesh off of them. So this was a long-term project for him. Yeah, and this is... Another thing that pops up quite a lot is of police missing the opportunity to arrest people and he has stopped for drink driving on the way to the dump to dump the bodies but the police just kind of let him go like oh he's only a wee bit drunk so they just let him go so he gets to the dump he puts Stevie into bags spreads them all about the dump and then sort of kind of gets on with his life like goes to college um Six weeks after murdering this guy, he's doing business and his dad, his dad kind of knows that there's something not quite right with him and in 79, urges him to join the army, I think, or... He does, yeah, he kind of gets him to do that, which he, he does, is he trains as a medical specialist um, in San Antonio, Texas, and then he gets stationed over in um, Bumholder in Germany. Um, two soldiers... <laughs> <laughs> so childish, man, me laughing at. <laughs> two, two soldiers attested to being raped by him while in the army. Uh, one said that he repeatedly raped him over a 17-month period while they both stationed at Bumholder. Well, another soldier believes Dalmer drugged and raped him inside an, an armoured personnel carrier in 1979. So 
even in the kind of the army where he's not a soldier, so to speak, he's there in a medical capacity, he's still kind of taking control of people, Jack, and me doing these sort of things in an environment where you think it would be harder to get away with that sort of thing. Um, it's the guy really was quite determined to be an absolute shit. Yeah, he eventually gets a job in a delicatessen, basically, and you imagine in a delicatessen you're cutting up meat all day and stuff like that, but he's spending all of his money on booze, basically, and doesn't pay his rent, so he gets evicted from a motel. He ends up sort of sleeping on the beach for a wee while, decides to return to Ohio and stay with his father and stepmother. This is when he gets arrested. He's still boozing all the time, and he's just arrested for basically being drunk and disorderly given a $60 fine and a suspended 10-day jail sentence. So he's in and out of prison as a young adult, basically, but nobody really cottoned on to what he was going to be going to be doing next. Now, he's got a bit of an interesting relationship with his grandmother because I think his grandmother was, like, basically one of the only people that he ever had any meaningful relationship with. He did. He, treated, he seemed to treat her really nice. Like, he actually loved her in some ways he basically went to church with her he did chores for her um, he tried to get a job and abide by most of her house rules with the exception of still drinking and smoking um, and he got a job as a phlebotomist at the Milwaukee Blood Plasma Centre had the job for 10 months Jack before he got laid off um, but he remained unemployed for 2 years after that uh, just basically living on whatever money his grandmother gave him and for doing the chores and stuff like that so when he moved in with his grandmate, he almost started living a normal life. He calmed down, got a job, started behaving himself, and almost could have came close to turning himself around. However, he obviously didn't. No, he decides to get his willy out in front of 25 women and children at a point. So, again, he's convicted for this and fined $50 plus his court costs. Again, it's an escalation from sort of drunk and disorderly then you're getting your willy out in front of women and children. But nothing nothing as serious as what he obviously gets to. Three or four years pass, mate, and he ends up sort of working in a chocolate factory like some sort of fucking dickens tale. Um, he's working six nights a week. He's working the night shift. He's getting quite a good wage as far as I can remember. don't have it in the notes, but he's getting paid something like $25 an hour, which back then was a lot of money. But again, just spending it in booze, sort of deciding to kick about the gay scene, basically. Um, he's gay and he's kicking about the gay bars. There's an incident in a public library, basically, where um, a guy passes him a note saying, do you want a gobble type thing? Dan was kind of like, I am, I'm quite into that, actually. So I think he, he gets a gobble off the guy. I, I think he escapes. And this kind of... Makes him think, oh, brilliant, I'm going to start kicking about bathhouses, stuff like that. But a lot of the people aren't the same as the guy in the library. They don't particularly want notes passed. They're not just going to suck him when he wants. So that starts to build as a frustration. And I'm calling in this frustration kind of leads leads to badness, you know. And he starts doing naughty shit to people in the bathhouses. He does, just while he's doing that as well. Another weird thing that he does, mate, is he steals a male mannequin from a store, which he uses to basically fucks it. <laughs> his, his gran found it in his closet and demanded that he chucked it out. Um, but you're right, by late 85, he began to regularly frequent the bathhouses, which later described as being quite relaxing. Um, but during his sexual encounters, he became frustrated at the fact that his partners had the audacity to move around while he was having sex with them and he didn't particularly like that so he started giving them sleeping pills and giving them lots of liquor laced with sedatives so that they were pretty much unconscious and he could have his way with them he got caught for this man yeah, yeah 12 times mate um, he did it 12, <laughs> 12 times and that was when the bathhouses decided to revoke Dalmer's membership um, so obviously it's a bit like um, have you heard Bob Bortimer talking about the sugar in his tea so he takes 17 sugars in his tea because 18 is too much, but 17 is just right. Obviously, 12 rapes is just too much. 11, okay. 13, 12, too much. And he was sacked. Um, not allowed in the bathhouses anymore. But he just moves on to hotel rooms, mate, and starts doing it in there instead. Um, and this is where it gets really sick, mate. This is a, a weird one. He read a newspaper story about the upcoming funeral of an 18-year-old guy. 
and he started fantasizing and plotting how he could go and get that corpse and take it home and, and do stuff with that instead. Yeah, so another escalation in his perverse behaviour wasn't just getting his willy out in front of kids and women. He starts to like choke the chicken in front of the wings. So two 12-year-olds, he gets his willy out and he's wanking away, gets caught for that. Kind of changes his story and, and claimed that I was only taking a piss as if that's much better, uh, like getting your will out and just pissing in front of kids, but charged with disorderly conduct and basically he was to undergo counselling. Uh, he was to go and see a counsellor. I, I don't know if he did go, but the counselling didn't help because now he kind of, this is the, the journey of him becoming the Milwaukee cannibal, basically. The killing was... <laughs> no, I'm not going to do it, right? I'm not going to do it. But here is a quote from Jeffrey. The killing was a means to an end. Um, it was the least satisfactory part. I didn't enjoy doing it. Uh, I tried to create living zombies. We used to pump uric acid uh, into their head. No, the killing was not an objective. I just wanted to have the person under complete control, not considering their wishes and being able to keep them as long as I wanted. So Jeffrey Dahmer, that's, that's what he wanted to do, like he didn't particularly want to kill people, he wanted to control them to such a degree that they were like living zombies basically. Uh, it wasn't that much longer, September 1987 he took another victim, this guy was a guy called Stephen Tiomi. Um they checked into a hotel and they drank uh, Dahmer eventually woke up to find Tommy dead um, with no memory of how it happened, so what he did was he went and bought a large suitcase put him in it took him back to his grandmother's basement where he started cutting them up and masturbating on top of them before eventually disposing of the remains. Um, that's, that's the risk, I suppose, when you're one of these serial killers that gets drunk with your victims that you might not actually remember what you've done when you wake up the next day. Well, that is it. He hits a, a teenager in the head with a fucking mallet at a point. The police, again, don't particularly follow this up or want to follow up because this is a another thing back in the day, Colin, was the marginalisation of certain people and if it was a drifter, they didn't care and the gay scene back then, the police just kind of went, eh, I don't want to get involved in that basically and what happened in the gay scene got kept in the gay scene and they kind of just ignored hitting, hitting a guy with a mallet, like, can you <laughs> Like, if I went out and just, like, hit somebody with a mallet, I'm pretty sure the polos would come in my door and want to have words with me. I'd like to think so, but you're right, they just, they obviously just thought, oh, those crazy gays, eh? What are they up to now, honey, are with mallets? And they just don't take it seriously back then, sadly. Um, there's another victim coming up, Jack, a 14-year-old guy called James Doctor, um, who was a, a 14-year-old male prostitute. Um, which is a, a tragedy of its own. Um, he lured him back to his house, offered to give him 50 quid to pose for nude pictures. Uh, the pair had sex. Uh, Dalmer drugged him, strangled him on the floor of the cellar, left the body in the cellar for a week before dismembering it, uh, much like he'd done with Tiomi, and he placed all of Duxator's remains, including, sorry, apart from the skull, just in the bin, just put them in the trash. He then boiled the skull and it retained it for a while before pulverising it. Yeah, Demer says he doesn't particularly know sort of why it started, but he definitely doesn't blame things like society, pornography. He says those are just excuses. It was him that was fucked up, and Richard Guerrero is his fourth victim. Now, bisexual guy, he offers him 50 quid to just simply spend the night with him, get his hole, drugs him, pumps him full of sleeping pills, strangles him, this has been. He starts to. He gives the dead body a little, a little shook, as you do, and then dismembers the body twenty four hours later. Again, just sort of disposing of the body parts and trash, basically. He, he kind of. He's got. He's got a habit of keeping things. Um, pulverized bones mostly. He's not quite building the shrine that we will get to, but that's what he's sort of heading towards. He's got another lucky escape, but Colin. He does have a lucky escape here, April 23rd, or, or somebody else has a lucky escape, so to speak. He lures another young man back to the house. He gives him a drugged coffee, um, but both he and the victim then hear Dahmer's grandmother shouting down, is that you, Jeff? And Dahmer replied in a manner that led his grandmother to believe that he was alone. She did observe that he was not alone, and because of this, Dahmer thought, I better not kill this guy here, it's a bit too dodgy. My granny might notice it. Um, so he just waited until the guy became unconscious and took him to the county general hospital and left him there. 
Um, however, Jack, the relationship I had with his grandmother was getting close to an end here. Um, in September 1988, she asked him to move out because of his habit of bringing young men back to the house late at night and the foul smells that came from the basement and the garage. So he went and got himself a one-bedroom apartment uh, on North Street and he moved in there. And that was him, basically. He could do what he wanted with no watching eyes at this point. Yeah, it didn't take him long because the day after he moved into that new house, he drugged a 13-year-old boy, again, sort of using the pretext of come to my house, I'll pay you, we can take... Uh, I'll take photos of you. He's actually convicted for this, uh, second degree sexual assault and enticing a child for immoral purposes is how it is framed in the police report, basically being a pedo and he doesn't get put in jail for a long, long time. So the next victim is just really... Un- Look, all the victims are unlucky, but the fact that he's basically been convicted for being a pedophile and not put away... He's been done for drunk driving, he's been done for being drunk and disorderly, he's he's hit a guy over the head with a mallet at this point, Um, he's been pulled over by the police on the way to bury bodies or get rid of bodies, and now he's actually been found guilty of enticing a child, and he's still kicking about. He is, yeah. Anthony Sears just, again, sort of serendipity. Damer wasn't in the mood for killing this night, but Anthony thought he's quite an attractive guy, started speaking to Jeffrey, Jeffrey goes, okay, moan up the road, fucks him up, puts him in the grandmother's bathtub, flays the corpse, um, which is a verb that you don't, or a, an adjective, a verb? No, flaying is a verb, right? A verb that you don't particularly want to hear when it comes to corpses. He strips the flesh, pulverises the bones, blah, 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 all that sort of shit, puts it in the trash. Damer did find Sears particularly attractive and... This is the sort of first guy that he completely retains the body parts and he keeps his head and what else? Well, we'll just tell your mother that uh, that, uh, we ate it all. Wrong Term Emery has joined forces with Pi Sports at piesports.com. The pies are absolutely class. I love the Mr. Singh's chicken ambala. That is so tasty. That is a good one. I think my favourite would probably be the macaroni though. I prefer meeting my pie. That's what she said. <laughs> Deary me, so if I was to pick a second favourite, it would be the steak haggis and peppercorn sauce. It's not a bad choice for any of these pies, truth be told, Jack, because you've got things like the Dirty Mac, the mac and cheese with black pudding, traditional Scotch pie, you've got the Mr Singh's chicken and bala like we spoke about, and if you like a bit of beef, you've got the beefy bake. The choices are endless. And even if you're trying to lose a couple of pounds like myself and Colin probably could, there is the skinny Scotch, which has got 40% reduced fat. Sounds good. And one of the best things about this company is you don't have to go to the bakers and stand in a queue with people full of germs to get these. You don't have to go to Asda. You don't have to go to Morrison's. You don't have to go to Tesco. Nowhere like that. You go to piesports.com. You select your pies. You put in your address and they deliver them to your house anywhere in central Scotland. It couldn't be easier than that. As a listener, you get special treatment though and you can win a box of pies delivered anywhere in the UK. All you've got to do is look out for the hashtag WTMPies on Twitter or use our website wrongtermemory.com and fill in the form there and you could win a box of pies each week on the show. May as well pass to a couple of other Scottish legends. That's magic. Well, what's that? 17 minutes ago, was it? Mm. We're in the house minding my own business, lining my ribs, then boof, we're here on the high street searching for the beefy bake. Oh. That is the power of advertising, Jack Boy. Mm. We are the mere puppets of your marketing bigwigs. His he's balls. Heading Bobby. Yeah. yeah, heading Bobby. Yes, he keeps uh, his balls. Yeah. Puts him in some acetone and just kept him in his locker at work, mate. Um, been a long time since I was in the office, but I think folk would have noticed a head and a Bobby in my locker. Yes, 100%. He does get a probationary sentence uh, alongside a one-year actual sentence, but he's in a sort of... Um, Baby prison. Hello, friends. Colin here. The looks, the charm, and the brains behind Drunk Term Memory. Just wanted to pop in and interrupt your listening pleasure to let you know about our Patreon and some changes that we've made to it recently. We've now introduced a £1 tier where you get absolutely hee haw, other than the sense of achievement that could only come from supporting two great guys like myself and Jack. We've also reduced the price of the two top tiers uh, by a pound on each of them, just because we appreciate 
life is a little bit shit just now and uh, if we can make things a little bit better for people then we will so check us out at patreon.com forward slash wrong term memory and you'll be able to get early access to shows ad free and lots of bonus content almost where he's allowed to sort of work during the day and return to prison at night uh, alongside five year probation and years later um I posted a video of this on, on Twitter the other day. His father had wrote a letter to the court about Damer and how he needed help and he was worried that if he got released he was going to get into more trouble and it was kind of ignored, basically. Um, he got given early, early release after 10 months. So he has spent time in a minimum security prison, but this is where it really fucking kicks off. He moves to 924 North 25th Street, apartment 213, which, as far as I know, has been knocked down now because people are just constantly going there to take pictures. But this is where the escalation of murders starts here, mate. Yeah. It is, yeah. And he did pop into his work and get the, the head and boss out of the locker and take them to the new house for him as well because he wanted them in there with him. But yeah, this this was a place where, where bad stuff happens. There's another quote here from him. I'm not going to try and do the voice, Jack, but I'll I'll try and do my best. I was branching out, and that's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and the arm muscle, he told Inside Edition in 1993. It was a way of making me feel that they were a part of me. At first it was just curiosity, and then it became compulsive. And you've got victim number six coming up here, Raymond Smith. And another great example, Jack, of police incompetence. Yeah, so he kills this guy. Again, 50 quid I'll take pictures of you, laced his drink with sleeping pills. Damer's getting linked slightly to sort of missing people's report and stuff like that. There are his neighbours saying, this guy's house is fucking stinking, but police turn up to the wrong address, <laughs> trap the door. That house doesn't smell, so they just leave and just let him get on with his shit. What he's starting to do now, old Jeffrey is getting some modern-day technology. He's getting a Polaroid camera, and he's starting to take pictures of these fucked-up bodies, this dismemberment. He's boiling legs, arms. He's putting things in kettles and a substance called Solex, which is like a, a... It's not a bone cleaner. That's not what it's made for, but that's what he was using it for. He's dissolving uh, skeletons. He's keeping skulls. He's putting things in acid. He's spray-painting skulls. Things are really starting to take off because he's got this sense of freedom that he's got his own house now and it's almost like I can get away with anything in here. That's exactly what he's thinking, yeah. He's, he's not hiding from his grandmother. He's not keeping things in the basement. It's all in plain sight now. Um, just a week or so, mate, after the murder of this guy, um, he loaded another young man back to the apartment. However, on this occasion, um, Tamer accidentally drank the... <laughs> the, 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 lady, the drink lady Mercedes himself rather than giving it to his guest he woke up the next day and discovered that his intended victim had fucking turned the tables on him stolen parts of his clothes stolen $300 out of his wallet and stole his watch funnily enough mate Dama never reported this to the police no he decided I better not tell them that uh, my my drug plan went, went awry his seventh victim was a guy called uh, Edward Smith and that was in June 1990, 27-year-old, again luring him back to the apartment, drug, strangled him. Rather than immediately uh, acidifying the skeleton this time, uh, he decides to, again, bleach it and, and keep it a little bit, sticks it in the freezer for a couple of months in this hope of retaining the moisture. The skeleton, the freezing of it didn't remove it, and he decided, no, fuck this, that doesn't work. So he's learning on the job. He thinks, like that doesn't work. So he eventually acidifies this. Uh, he accidentally destroys the skull, which would have made him angry, I think, when he puts it in the oven to dry it. Um, this caused uh, <laughs> the skull to explode, basically. Again, he doesn't really know what he's doing. It's like it's weird he's got this sort of rough concept of what you should do to uh, keep bones and, and stuff like that, but he doesn't get it quite right. Freezing it fucks it up, heating it explodes it. So he's fucking things up. He's trialling it, and I think the big thing as well is that when when he does fuck it up and he ends up destroying the skull and stuff like that, he feels bad and he actually thinks the murders are a waste of time because he's got nothing to retain after it, which kind of gives you an idea of where he's at at this point. It's more it's starting to get more about the mementos and the keepsakes and stuff like that. 
Um, less than three months later, mate, he's got Victor number eight on the go, a guy called Ernest Miller, 22-year-old Chicago native. He met him on the corner of North 27th Street, offered him 50 quid to come back and allow him to listen to his heart and stomach. Um, when Damer attempted to perform oral sex upon Miller, he was told that'll cost you extra. So what, rather than give him extra money, he just gave him a drink with two sleeping pills in it. Usual, um, no. The get usual, the, yeah. Get the Zoppy clone out, basically. Uh, the two sleeping pills weren't actually enough, though. Um, he was used to giving people six and seven at a time, though he only had two. So what he did was he killed Miller by slashing his carotid artery with the knife that he was using to dissect his victim's body. And Miller then bled to death within minutes. Uh, Damer then got his Polaroid camera out, mate, started posing with the nude body. Uh, doing <laughs> quite some photography, man. yeah. Mm. And then he placed the body in the bathtub for dismemberment, uh, all the time kissing it and talking to the severed head while he dismembered the remainder of the body. He's starting to figure things out, but because he puts the bone in a bleached substance for 24 hours, then just allows him to naturally dry for a week. And he's like, yes, I figured it out now. He paints them, obviously, to make them look nice. Nice and lovely, little bit of paint on there um, to cover up the, the chips and uh, the, like, the enamel, basically. A nice bit of pink paint. I'd imagine he was going for pink. I don't particularly know why, but I think that may have been his, his favourite colour. Because it makes know. the boys wink, obviously. does indeed three weeks but pass, and he thinks, fuck this, I'm going to murder somebody again. So David Thomas gets it this time on September the 24th. He meets him at the Grand Avenue Mall again, He's pretty persuasive at getting guys to come back um, for a couple of drinks and some money. Um, again, he gives this guy the sedatives, but he's not really, he doesn't really fancy him that much, so uh, he allows him to wake up, basically, this time, instead of controlling the guy. He allows him to wake up. The guy's obviously a bit pissed about being drugged uh, and goes, why did you drug me? And Damer goes, uh, fuck up, and strangles him, uh, kills him. Uh, takes a photo and dismembers the body yet again. There we are. He's got uh, he's got a thing for sure. Yeah, he does take a little break, but here, mate, for five months. Yeah, he takes five months annual leave. Um, basically, doesn't do any more killing. Um, it's unusual, but he had a long time without doing it. Um, it's reported that uh, between October and February, he tried on five occasions to lure people back to his apartment, but it didn't work. Um, he's known to have had feelings of both anxiety and depression at this point, um, starting to feel quite solitary in terms of his lifestyle and starting to have financial difficulties as well. Um, he's also uh, rumoured at the time to have had suicidal thoughts. Um, however, it's all back in the game again come February of 91, uh, when Curtis Strotter becomes victim number 10, Jack. Um, 17-year-old, uh, he meets him standing at a bus stop. Um, lures him back with the offer of money for posing for nude photos with the added incentive of sexual intercourse. Drugged him, strangled him, uh, used a leather strap and then dismembered him. He kept the skull, he kept the hands and he kept the genitals and he's photographing each stage of this process now, Jack, and keeping that for posterity as well. Yeah, another quote, I started to separate the joints, the arm joints, the leg joints and did two boilings. I think I used four boxes of Solex for each one, put the upper portion of the body and boiled that for about two hours, and then the lower portion for another two hours. The Solex would remove the flesh, turns it to a jelly-like substance, and then it would just rinses off pretty easily. Then I laid clean the bones in this light bleach solution that he was making by himself, left them there to dry, spread them out on a newspaper or cloth, and then just looked at them in the bedroom for a week. <laughs> cool. Wow. Um, yeah. Absolutely amazing. Um, yeah. Less than two months later, he encounters a 19-year-old named Errol Lindsay while walking to get a key cut. Uh, Lindsay was heterosexual, lured him back to his apartment, drugged him, drilled a hole in his skull and poured the hydrochloric acid into it. According to Dalmar, Lindsay woke up after this experiment, which Dalmar had conceived in the hope of inducing a permanent, unresistant, submissive state. Um, the guy woke up saying, I've got a headache, what time is it? In response to this, Damer drugged him again and then strangled him. He decapitated him, retained his skull, and then flayed his body, placing the skin in a solution of cold water and salt for several weeks in the hope of permanently retaining it. Reluctantly, though, after some time, he disposed of his skin when it became too frayed and too brittle. Yeah, so, guess in 1991 and he bumps into a 14-year-old and as if this family hadn't been through enough, you know, he had molested the, the boy before. This happens by coincidence, to be the younger brother of the boy that he had molested back in 1988. He approached the youth, offered them money, again, uh, to go back to the apartment. 
the boy was a little bit like, nah, I'm not really interested, but eventually gets persuaded to go back, um, where he strips him to his underwear, and takes uh, sexy photos of him with his Polaroid camera, uh, then drugs him and shooks him off and drills a hole in his head, he gets the black and decker out, like, uh, puts a hole in this boy's skull, unfortunately, uh, puts a little bit of hydrochloric acid in there into the frontal lobe. Uh, the boy obviously doesn't survive this because, well, you're not meant to survive getting acid put in your head. This is the, so this is like a, a prerequisite. So he takes the boy into the room and there's already a body there. So he'd already killed an R guy, a 31-year-old guy called Tony Hughes, who he'd killed three days earlier and just left him lying in the bedroom on the floor, bollock, fucking naked. He doesn't... Like the, the 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 young boy, he's pretty fucked up, right? But he's got this survival instinct and decides, right, I, I'm I'm getting out of here. Runs, basically runs out the front door, runs down the street, fucking ball up naked, and there's women there, and they're obviously a little bit distressed seeing this, so they are about to phone the police. But Damer walks up to him. He's, he's a pretty confident guy. He's pretty confident in his stories, and just tells them that. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, this is my boyfriend, and that's and that's it. Um, they 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 tell him we've already phoned nine one one, so there's no point in your excuses. And then the police turn up, mate. And again, we're on, we're only at the twelfth victim. More police incompetence. There's a naked boy running about the street with a fucking hole in his head. <laughs> yeah, and what did yeah. the police do? They turn up. They turn but, up and make an absolute cunt of it, basically. <laughs> um, he convinces these two officers that this 19-year-old is his boyfriend, he's drunk too much, they've had a little bit of a fight, and that he was always behaving this way when he gets drunk. The three women were exasperated, and when one of the trio attempted to indicate to one of the officers that the guy was bleeding from his buttocks, and that, he's he's his... <laughs> <laughs> and that he was seemingly struggling against Damer's attempts to walk him to the apartment, the officer harshly informed her to butt out um, shut up <laughs> not to interfere adding this incident was domestic um, so again Jack these police officers um, are, are, are stupid they're thick or else they just don't got to get involved in any sort of gayness they're not interested oh in no they back. don't want involved because what they do is they just wrap the boy in a towel and take him back to the fucking apartment back to the murder scene they take him back yeah Jesus Christ like the, the two police were called Balkarek and Gabrish they didn't like conduct a background check or nothing because it would have come up that he was a fucking child molester they decided just to leave it because like you said they don't want anything to do with the gays Uh, they've seen a boy bleeding from his bum and thought well he's the right good blasting so we'll just take him back and let Jeffrey have his way man Jesus but they also dropped him back at the apartment put their head round the door, had a quick look round the place and thought, <laughs> nothing to see here, <laughs> and off they went. Um, absolutely amazing. As soon as the, soon as the police officers left, Damer injects hydrochloric acid back into the hole in the guy's fucking brain in his skull. Um, this time it's proved fatal, and the guy dies. Um, the next day, Damer takes a day's leave from his work to devote himself to the dismemberment of the bodies of the two victims, and obviously, Jack, he kept both of their skulls. Yeah, he did. June the 30th, um, he travels to Chicago. He's like, I've been killing people five minutes from my house for too long, so I may as well go somewhere else. Meets a guy called Matt Turner at a bus station. His story's changed a little bit. Um, He's pretending to be a professional photographer now, persuades him to come back to the apartment for a professional photo shoot. What do you think he does to the guy? Um, I've got a feeling he maybe kills him, fucks his face, uh, puts a hole in his skull, <laughs> cuts him up, eats him a bit, a little bit of fraying, and then puts the skull in his cabinet again. Am I, am I close? Yeah, you hit a nail on the head, mate, pumps him full of drugs and fucking dismembers him. Yeah, I bet he pumps him. Yeah. Victim number 15, Jeremiah now, um, again, lures him to the apartment with the promise of getting getting the sex on. Uh, he drugs him and puts boiling water in this guy's skull for a change to see if that makes him a zombie, but it doesn't. It just puts him in a coma and he dies two days later. Victim number 16 comes along not long after it. Um, 
July the 15th, a guy called Oliver Lacey. He met him at the corner of 27th Street and Kilburn. And this guy agreed to the Damon's rules of posing nude for photographs, came back to the apartment with him. They had tentative sexual activity before Damon drugged Lacey. Uh, on this occasion, Damon intended to prolong the time he spent with Lacey while alive. So after unsuccessfully attempting to render him unconscious with chloroform, he phoned his workplace to request a day's absence. This was granted, and the next day, uh, he was suspended from work. Um, after strangling Lacey, Dalmer had sex with the corpse before dismembering him. He put his head and his heart in his fridge and his skeleton in the freezer, Jack. Yeah, four days later he gets the sack after the suspension. That pisses him off a little bit, so he goes out and he finds a guy called Joseph Bretoft, invites him to his apartment, strangles him, um, he's left lying there, dead for two days, removes the sheets, it's, there's maggots and shit crawling about now, so he just chops the head off, decapitates it, uh, cleans it, puts it in the refrigerator, acidifies the bones, rinse and repeat, basically here. Um, he, he does get caught, um, Jeffrey Damon has been quoted as saying it's hard for me to believe that a human uh, could have done what I have done but I know what I did so he knows exactly what he's doing but it's not until June 22nd 1991 that he's caught he offers three men a hundred dollars to accompany him to again get in the nudie get full of beer and sort of keep him company in inverted commas one of the trio Tracy Edwards goes like that right okay I'll come back he enters the apartment it's fucking stinking uh, there's acid in the floor. Damer's claiming, I cleaned bricks for that. The guy's a little bit fucking dubious. Uh, they have a little bit of conversation. Edwards says, mm, uh, I, I'm not really sure if I want to get into this sort of crazy shit that you want to do. So Damer gets a little bit pissed off, tries to handcuff him. And Edwards is a little bit, he, he kind of knows, right, shit, I'm in a little bit of trouble here, there. So he kind of agrees to go along with what Damer um, is saying, um, right, okay, I, I will I will pose for you. He does notice that Exorcist 3 is on the background, which is a really shitty film, but that was one of one of Damer's favourites. The guys agreed. Damer comes back with a knife. Uh, he thinks, right, okay, he's got a knife, I need to fucking get out of here. Um, but he starts to do the sexy dance, basically, and starts to strip off. So he's like, do, 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 then fucking runs out the front door. Uh, thank fuck for that, because he got away and basically this is this is how he gets caught because this guy escapes, gets through the front door, gets to the police and this is when the police eventually get in uh, at 11.30 on July the 22nd. Um, like I said, the day after he's went back to his house, he's pretending for a day or two to be to be into it with Jeffrey but eventually escapes and two Milwaukee police officers, uh, Robert Ruth and Rolf Muller, eventually get into his house, so they do call him. They did, yeah. Um, they they got into the house and they obviously saw the handcuffs. They looked for the handcuff keys, couldn't couldn't put that together. Uh, but when they arrived at the apartment, Damon invited them in and acknowledged that he did place the handcuffs on him. He said, "Yeah, I put handcuffs on him." Um, Edwards told the officers that Damon had also brandished a large knife upon him, and this had happened in the bedroom. Damon made no comment on this revelation, indicating to one of the officers that the key to the handcuffs was in his bedroom dresser. As Mueller entered the bedroom, Damon attempted to pass Mueller to himself, retrieve the key, whereupon the second officer present, Ralph, informed him to back off. In the bedroom, Mueller notices a large knife beneath the bed, but he also saw an open drawer jack, and it had just literally hundreds of Polaroid pictures of bodies in various stages of dismemberment and the officer said at the time the smell coming out of the place that was just unbelievable they couldn't have, couldn't believe it they actually said to each other is this for real? Aye they managed to like sort of get them on the floor handcuff them and open the freezer basically or the refrigerator there's a severed head of a black guy on the bottom shelf and uh, Damer is on the floor and basically just says for what I did I should be dead. Uh, a more detailed search is carried out. They find four severed heads, seven skulls, some painted, some bleached. Uh, inside a closet, inside his fridge, they discovered collected blood drippings on a tray at the bottom of his refrigerator, two human hearts, some arm muscle, each wrapped inside plastic bags. They find an entire torso in his freezer, a bag of human organs, 
and just flesh stuck to the ice at the bottom. Elsewhere in apartment 213, they discovered two entire skeletons, a pair of severed hands, two severed and preserved penises, a modified scalp, and a 57-gallon drum full of dissolved torsos in an acid solution, a total of 74 Polaroid pictures of dismemberment, him kissing them, uh, in reference to the bo- recovered recovery of body parts, um, the chief medical examiner later states, it's more like a dismantling someone's museum than an actual crime scene. He, he's caught red-handed, mate, and basically confesses to it. So he does. <laughs> he does. He holds his hand up, tells him what he's done, and uh, actually gives the police a fair bit of information over a total of, I think, 60 hours of interrogations and information that he gives away. And he, he basically admits to, I think, 16 murders, I think he, he gives them. And he starts giving them the details and telling them what he did. The only sad thing is, Jack, that it's all very good doing that, but these bodies and stuff are long gone. There's no real recovery well, that's process it. The, the, only point, one, <clears throat> the only one that he didn't get convicted for is the second one, because he was that drunk he couldn't remember doing it. <laughs> that, that's the only one that he didn't confess to, because he said, I don't remember. So you didn't get charged for that. So that one's kind of still an open case, which is a little bit strange. Yeah, that is strange. That's going to be open for a long time. Um, it's it's just, we every time we talk about one of these guys, there is a trail of police incompetence and amazement at sometimes that they've got away with some stuff and not been caught, Jack. And this is a guy who should have been locked up and given help a long, long time before it got to this. And he wasn't. And he turned into a fucking monster. And it's it's that it's that old saying. I can't remember where I've heard it before, but the the idea of telling like ghost stories and stories about monsters and stuff like that is pointless because the real monsters are kind of just kicking about amongst you, aren't they? And he was one of them. Well, that is it. Yeah, it's 1992 before it basically gets to trial. He's convicted of. Um, I think at the, at first it was only four, which is mad that they only sort of brought four against him. He eventually gets charged for like I say, 15 or 16. One of them they can't charge him for because they don't have the evidence and he doesn't admit to it because he he can't remember. Basically, the trial lasted two weeks, so it didn't, didn't take that long um, to put him down for such a such a long time. A lot of the like, sort of psychiatrists say that he's got uh, paraphilia, basically, uh, a schizo, schizophilia personality disorder basically he's f- fucked up in the head like really fucking not well um, they both testify independently that he's got serious pent up aggression he killed the men because he wanted to kill them and because of his homosexual attraction to them he killed what he hated in himself basically that he didn't like that he was gay and would then kill gay people because of that so there's all sorts of shit going on in this guy's head what we will do um, just to wrap it up because I think it's quite interesting can we read his full statement to the court after the trial Colin um, I w- it's quite long right but um, your honour it is over now but this has never been a case of trying to get free I didn't ever want freedom frankly I wanted death for myself this was a case to tell the world that I did what I did, not for reasons of hate. I hated no one. I knew I was sick or evil, or both. Now I believe I was sick. The doctors have told me about my sickness, and now I have some peace. I know how much harm I have caused. I tried to do the best I could after the arrest to make amends, but no matter what I did, I could not undo the terrible harm I have caused. My attempt to help identify the remains was the best I could do, and that was hardly anything. I feel so bad for what I did to these poor families, and I understand their rightful hate. I now know I will be in prison for the rest of my life. I know that I'll have to turn to God to help to get me through each day. I should have stayed with God. I tried and failed, and I created a holocaust. Thank God there will be no more harm that I can do. I believe that only the Lord Jesus Christ can save me from my sins. I have instructed Mr Boyle to end this matter. I do not want to consent the civil cases. I have told Mr Boyle to try and finalise them if he can. If there is ever money, I want it to go to the families. I have talked to Mr Boyle about other things that might help ease my conscience. 
I don't right, okay. In some way uh, of coming up with ideas of how to make some amends to these families, and I will work with him on that. I want to return to Ohio and quickly end that matter so I can put all of this behind me and then come right back here to do my sentence. I decided to go through this trial for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was to let the world know that these were not hated crimes. I wanted the world and Milwaukee, which I deeply hurt, to know the truth of what I did. I didn't want unanswered questions. All the questions have now been answered. I wanted to find out just what it was that caused me to be so bad and evil. But most of all, Mr Boyle and I decided that maybe there was a way for us to tell the world that if there are any people out there with these disorders, maybe they can get help before they end up being hurt or hurting someone. And I think my trial did that. Yeah, that sort of links back to his, his earlier case and when his dad had written as well. The judge in my earlier case tried to help me and I refused his help and he got hurt by what I did. I hurt those policemen in the Conorak matter and I shall ever regret causing them to lose their jobs and I only hope and pray that they get their jobs back because I know they did their best and I just plain fooled them for that. I am sorry. I know I hurt my probation officer who was really trying to help me and I'm so sorry for that and sorry for everyone else I have hurt. I've hurt my mother and father and stepmother. I love them all so very much. I hope that they will find some peace I am looking for. Mr Boyle's associates, Wendy and Ellen, have been wonderful to me, helping me through this, this worst of all times. I want to publicly thank Mr Boyle. He didn't need to take this case, but when I asked him to help me find the answers and help others if he could, he stayed with me and went overboard in trying to help me. Mr Boyle and I agreed that it was never ever a matter of trying to get off. It was only a matter of which place I'd be housed in for the rest of my life. Not for comfort, but for trying to study me in hopes of helping me and learning to help others who might have problems. I know I will be in prison. I pledge to talk to the doctors who might be able to find the answers. In closing, I just want to say I hope God has forgiven me. This is interesting. I think he has. I know society will never be able to forgive me. I know the families of the victims will never be able to forgive me for what I have done. But if there is a God in heaven, I promise I will pray each day to ask for forgiveness when the hurt goes away, if ever. I have seen their tears, and if I could give them my life right now and bring back their loved ones, I would do. I am so very sorry. Your Honour, I know you're about to sentence me. I ask for no consideration. I want you to know that I have been treated perfectly by the deputies who work for the jail. The deputies have treated me professionally and I want everyone to know that they have not given me special treatment. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King external, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Minus one, Timothy one fifteen seventeen. Well, that is it. I know my time in prison will be terrible, but I deserve whatever I get because of what I have done. Thank you, Your Honour. I am prepared for your sentence, which I know will be the maximum. I ask for no consideration. Now, that was quite lengthy, mate, and I wanted to read it for a couple of reasons, because when you are this much of a fucked up individual, I personally believe in rehabilitation, right? I think you can be a criminal and you can be rehabilitated and you can then go on with your life. But it's fucking different when it's the... It is. These people would get out and just start fucking killing gay people again or whatever. Like, surely, can people like this be rehabilitated? Can they? Not in the traditional sense, no, I don't think so. Um, Could they... No, I, I, I'm trying. I'm trying to be a, a humanist here and try and find a, a way of making that work. But no, th- these guys like him. Although he seems quite repentant here, and he's actually put together a, a fairly educated-sounding statement with the thanks of his lawyer. He's too far gone, mate. He's a monster. You can't. You can't do the things he did and just expect a switch to have changed him to be. A, a, a great member of society again I get rehabilitation I, like you I believe people can be I don't believe there's enough of it in prison and um, I think it's a, a real failing in modern society what happens to people when they go into prison because it really just starts a kind of never ending crescendo of in and out of it rather than rehab but for people like Kim I do think they're beyond help and no good could ever have came of him coming out of, out of prison again 
Yeah, so he gets put in. He gets put in prison. He gets put in the Columbia Correctional Institution um, for his first year of incarceration, put in solitary confinement because obviously he's a quite a famous case, and there's sort of they're thinking about his safety, even though he deserves to die. Basically, transferred to a less secure unit. He gets a two-hour job cleaning the toilet block. Um, he's still speaking to police at this time to sort of get his confessions out. He turns to the Bible, which is something that we see because I think they, they kind of take that into account when it comes to criminals in America, if they manage to find God. He gets baptised in 1994 um, by Roy Ratcliffe, a minister in the Church of Christ. And after this baptism, he goes weekly um, to sort of confession and shit like that. And he's regularly discussing the prospect of death, basically. And death does eventually come to him in prison Colin he's actually quoted the saying if I was killed in prison that would be a blessing right now so he's not having a good time in prison which he shouldn't be but uh, it gets to November mate and what, what happens because he doesn't uh, he doesn't basically spend his whole life on death row no he doesn't spend his whole life um, basically in July 1994 a fellow inmate Osvaldo Darufi attempted to slash his throat with a razor embedded in a toothbrush as he returned to his cell Um from his weekly church service. Um, he received superficial wounds and was not seriously hurt in the incident. Uh, but like you say, he'd been ready to die and um, this was just the first attempt on his life. Um, later on, um, he on the morning of November 28th, 1994, he left his cell to conduct his assigned work detail. Accompanying him were two fellow inmates, a Jesse Anderson and a Christopher Scarver. They were left unsupervised in the showers of the prison uh, for approximately 20 minutes. Damon was discovered on the floor of the bathroom of the gym, suffering from extreme head and facial wounds. He'd been severely bludgeoned about the head and face with a 20-inch metal bar. His head had been repeatedly stuck against the wall in the assault, and although he was still alive, he was rushed to a nearby hospital and pronounced dead one hour later. Um, Anderson had also been beaten with the same instrument and died two days later from his wounds. Scarver, who was serving a life sentence for murder committed in 1990, told authorities that he first attacked Damer with the metal bar um, before attacking Anderson. Um, and that was, the, that was the end of Jeffrey Damer, mate. Yeah, like, Damer's mother, Joyce, like, responded quite angrily to the media, saying, is everybody happy now? Now he's been bludgeoned to death. Is that good enough for everyone? And the response of the family was understandably mixed, um, although most would appear to be happy. With his death, there were obviously others that thought he should have sort of served it out and not got what some people would call the easy way out, which is death, basically. So he should have served his sentence in that environment for the rest of his life. So I can sort of see uh, where they're coming from. The guy that <coughs> uh, the guy that killed him, um, Scarver, confessed that he had a concealed weapon and he, he killed both Emerson and Anderson in the morning. Um, he kind of tried to backtrack on it a little bit uh, and said it was about a, it wasn't about who Damer was it was about a concentration um, that they had had at some point during their time in jail and um, this guy alleges, alleges that immediately before murdering Damer he'd cornered him, presented a newspaper article showing him all his crimes and Damer sort of was unrepentant basically and that's what drove him over the edge was like oh you're not sorry about this so fucked him up. He deserved to die. Um, I've got no qualms about that. I do have qualms about fucking... So, not social justice, mob justice and blah, blah, blah. I don't particularly think it's right. But again, in this case, fuck him, man. He's a horrible cunt. No matter how well written his fucking sorry letter was, he deserved <laughs> to get fucked up. But he's still your favourite. He's still my favourite, for sure. Uh, do you know there was a, um, a song about him? Yeah, by Peril Jam. You into Peril Jam? No. I'm not. I'm not um, a friend of ours, Suzanne, loves them, but I've never really been into them. Yeah, there's a song called Dirty Frank, uh, and the lyrics go, Dirty Frank, Damer, he's a gourmet cook, yeah, I got a recipe for Anglo-Saxon soup, yeah, wanted to pass, so she relaxed, now the little groupie's getting chopped up in the back, I got a cupboard full of fleshy, fresh ingredients, uh, and that was uh, Eddie Vader, who used to go on a bus with a creepy uh, driver called Frank, and he thought he could be a bit like Jeffrey Dahmer, so that's why that song is called Dirty Frank, and it is kind of based upon a bus driver and Jeffrey Dahmer, basically. So he has leached his way into popular culture 
as well, mate, I suppose, which is kind of unsurprising. You know, these guys are, I think, endlessly interesting to read yeah. about. Yeah. yeah, I read about them, podcasts about them, movies about them, documentaries about them. They're all over the place now, and he's one. he has one of the most uh, well-covered. Um, so even though there's a lot of stuff out there about him, I hope we've been able to kind of put this together for you guys this week. Um in our own kind of unique way, give you an idea of what we found interesting about him and hopefully you into you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I think um like see if you're eating like dead bodies, you maybe need a wee bit of chewing gum or a wee bit of mint or something, maybe even a some men's toes. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh fuck me. Yeah. Wrap it up there then. Huh? Yeah, I think that's the the best way to end it, yeah, absolutely. Uh, who are we talking about next week? Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Oh, wonderful. That's something to look forward to then. Good. It really is. We need your feedback, guys, because you're our listeners and we produce a show so that you enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, let us know. If you do enjoy it, let us know as well. Uh, Wrongtermmemory.com. There is a contact sheet there. We're obviously on Twitter, at Wrongtermmemory. And that is about it. There's a hello at Wrongtermmemory.com if you're a little bit uh, I was going to say a little bit older, but that's not right. Um, a little bit more into emails. You can send us an email as well. Yeah. You can also buy us a coffee. If you want to buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wrong term memory. And you can also go and leave us a five star review on iTunes because I'll be honest, we're not getting enough of them. So please make the effort, go and do it and write something nice about us. If you're going to not go leave a five star review, don't leave any though. Five stars all we want. Thank you. And that'll do us, man. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. There's jokes about five guys in there. We could have done head and shoulders, <laughs> Ben and Jerry, handshakes. I didn't know what, I didn't know what they were. Top dates. I don't know <laughs> exactly. what you've written. <laughs> we'll leave it in. Right, guys, bye. <laughs>